Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 137, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, are robots ever going to find their way into your classroom? And why a coffee shop franchise decided to open up inside a high school. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our expert gives us some ideas to make your science lessons more fun. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by Baby Yoda's original teacher, Principal Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic because the force is with me. Uh, have you watched The Mandalorian yet? Do you even know what I'm Absolutely talking about? Absolutely not. Okay. I didn't know that where you were going. not my cut. That's not your thing. <laughs> Do you know about Baby Yoda? Has it made yeah. it? Okay. So it did bubble up into your world of pop culture. Y- yes. Okay. It was, um, I, I enjoyed the show and I, I'm, you know, through that first season, I won't um, be able to do it. I'm sorry. It's all the rage right now. Oh, well. No, not no. your thing. No, I'm no. still, I'm still okay. hooked on Netflix and catching up on some uh, new series. How are things going at school this week? We are, here we are pushing into February. I mean, does, when do you start to feel like you're on the downward slope of the school year? <laughs> at the end. <laughs> at the end, like At the May, end. Because June. really in the principal's world, you're in, come March, you're planning the next year. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, no, when, you're trying to close when, out and plan. When do they release the calendars for next year? Because I was like trying to plan something. Uh, and like, ours has been released. Oh, yours has? Yeah. Okay, so my, our my, teachers voted on it early in January. And then our superintendent shared which option um, won the popular vote. So like, OK, you now you've gotten really curious. Like what what's the difference between well, what I two? really like about it is um, he puts together uh, either a committee or some options for um, three different calendars and then they send it out in a Google survey and every um, employee has an opportunity with, that Let's has an see. email has an opportunity to select which one they think would be best for the school year and the one with the most votes is the one that we go with so the one that won what was it about that calendar that the others didn't have it, was it like one particular day or like a um, I believe break? option one is the calendar that the majority of the district selected. And I actually picked option three. But if I recall, generally, teachers pick calendars based on vacation days, like how many days we get for Thanksgiving um, or um, other staff development days, but also how many days they get on the front end or back end um, of the school year. So who was I talking to the other day? Oh, oh, I know who it was. It was a teacher. I think it was in Lamar County. They said that they're not allowed or they are allowed. You get your pay docked if you take a vacation day next to like Christmas break or Thanksgiving break. Have you heard of well, this? Well, yes, but actually the they're misinterpreting the the state code on that. Okay, it's a state rule. It's a state thing. Okay. Um, it has to do with, in the past, you could not take a day off the day before a holiday because you would be docked. But a few years ago, it changed. And if you have 10 years of service within the state, okay, then if you need to be off right before a holiday, we still actually not to do that too much because, you know, we don't want attendance right. to 
supper, but say you're in a wedding and you've got to get going um, Friday before Christmas break. Mm-hmm. Um, you work it out with your principal, obviously, in advance, but there can't be a, um, you know, a financial consequence. But if you have not, if say you're a first year teacher, you're definitely going to be docked. Docked. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, so that's something that comes with tenure. It used to drive me nuts when people would call in sick, like right after, like it's one thing to use a personal day, mm-hmm. like, but they would use sick days right after. And I'm kind of like, well, uh, yeah, that and that's, a, but it, mm-hmm. I mean, you it's can't all really about, question it, you but know? it's all about professionalism and what that, you're doing for children. I will tell you in true. my 22 years, um, the, for the first time I took off the day before a holiday before mm-hmm. Thanksgiving break, um, I had some appointments that I just could not avoid, um, that, that were already set and, and I needed to handle that. And so I have never done that before. Well, as an outsider, I feel like it, it should be allowed. Cause I mean, sometimes you do want to extend that vacation that made well i didn't go anywhere for yeah. for the holidays you right. know we were home but that friday i just i had some um, appointments i could not push but that same thing happened in january when we returned from christmas break i'm sorry but my annual appointment fell on the first day that students were back right. i mean that's scheduled way back when exactly. so yeah. um you know i didn't take the day off i, I left a little early to meet my appointment but right. things like that happen and when people are professional and they're at work regularly and they're giving it they're all you know an administrator work with teachers exactly. on things of that nature. But when you you have teachers who miss work a lot, they're tardy a lot, just, you know, the lack mm-hmm. of professionalism and commitment, it, it it's concerning. What's going on in the uh, teacher's lounge today? Nick, the robots are coming. The robots are coming. Hey, Paul Revere, is that what we're doing? I'm just telling you that there's, there's some issues going on. We're talking about robots in the classroom. Yeah, I'm sure anyone listening to this is thinking... Heck no. Like, I'm telling you, heck no. I just don't think the single greatest factor in the success of a child's academic career is the teacher. And I just don't think a robot can provide all the things that teachers provide. Now, let's be clear. We're talking about content, grade level skills, but we're also talking about nurturing. We're talking about, you know, building strong relationships, being a confidant. Um, there's so much more um, emotional support that's required to actually make a connection with students and be able to get them to work for you. Okay, so the idea of a AI, artificial intelligence robot, in front of the classroom, you think will never happen. I think like, it's insane. Now, let's talk about when we first started seeing the boom with um, online classes, virtual classes. Mm-hmm. It was weird. People didn't think it would work. But there's a person on the other side of that screen somewhere logged in and facilitating an online discussion and how you do your work and how you receive your content. Um, it's still someone that if you need to end up having a phone call with or if you need to end up having um, you know, a Skype meeting with because you're struggling, that can happen. You're talking about mastering skills or a course with a robot okay let me throw an idea at you that might not seem too crazy like what if you had let's let's talk college level because i feel like you you need to have responsible children in the room right but let's just say you have a a lecture hall full of college students and then you have a hologram of a real person teaching classrooms all over the country simultaneously. So your teacher's never actually present in the room. Now see, when you present it that way, adult learning is very different. You got to understand from K-12 learning. Um, And when you are um, in engineering, when you are in uh, political science and you've got a hologram there teaching you and the material is appropriate, I mean, you're learning, can the robot interact? Can you answer questions? You know, I'd want to know all of that, but you're at the responsible 
age and position to listen to the content and take your notes because generally a lot of college courses are straight lecture. Mm -hmm. You're in a lecture hall, there's 200 of you and you just listen. There's not a lot of back and forth. But in a K-12 classroom, there's so much more involved um, with teaching children. And I just Uh, find it to be kind of insane. Now also, you know, in this article, it talks about, um, you know, robots being of assistance. Mm -hmm. I I think I'd like to see that in action. So in my mind, when you talk about assistance, I could see just like you had Watson. Remember Watson played on Jeopardy and and he beat Ken Jennings, right? Right. The goat. And so would it not be unthinkable to have a Watson-like teacher assistant to where, and we kind of already do, we have our phones, right? We can look up stuff, but where like you just have this computer who can answer anything on the fly. Well, listen, um, one school district in the Boston area is using a robot, but not to teach a whole class of students. Mm. Specifically, their EL population is getting some, you know, side interventions, some pullout support, and they're using um, some type of robot to help them with their English immersion. And I think that's rather cool because you're thinking about a very small group, maybe one to three, Mm -hmm. probably not more than five, interacting with the robot and practicing on their fluency, their English fluency. And I can see that as being successful. So like these these children are talking to Mm -hmm. a robot. Yes. But I also think someone has to facilitate and monitor. Right. Okay. Um, But I don't see how you can put 25 children in a room and think a robot's going to teach them. No, or certainly not there yet. No, but Um, they want to work on that. And let me tell you, I'm going to always fight against it because we need the teaching profession to last forever. Agreed. And and But it's just like in the medical field. Right, for sure. And I, I think it's a good thing. Like, I like the idea of a Watson-like intelligent computer in the doctor's office, or at least in their office office. So when you show them, you know, I've got this, 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 and this, they can go punch those symptoms into a computer, and maybe something might come up that they weren't thinking or didn't, weren't knowledgeable of. Maybe there's something new that developed because they got their medical doctor's license 25 There's still years some ago, type you know? of human facilitation. Right. Um, and so with education... It, it artificial intelligence just cannot replace the role of a teacher because strong relationships get you strong achievement. I, I think we can agree there. Now, I did see um, in the article that you're referring to, there was a um, teacher. It looks like it was a computer science class uh-huh. and it was online and he actually had a computer assistant set up. He had some assistants that were real people, but then one of them was a computer Assistant. Yeah. I loved how he conducted that study. It looks like only one student recognized that they were receiving responses and emails from a computer, but the rest of the students weren't really aware of that. So it does look like we're there to where, you know, might lighten the email load for a professor somewhere or maybe a teacher where you have this AI response. Well, the, the good thing about that is obviously if we're assigned classes, we're assigned to communicate with students, you know, we have to work around a schedule. You can't reply if you're teaching or working with another group, but with an automatic or, you know, with a robot, I mean, it's instant. So there's some positives to it. I just, I'm a little worried about it in the K-12 sector. Remember how I told you um, a few episodes back I was headed to Disney World? Yes. Um, so when I was booking that trip, you go on their website and you start to book it. And then there's this little chat window pops up and it's like, Hey, do you have a question? And I would, so hop- is there a person behind that? Nick? So this is what I think what was happening. I, I truly do. Cause I, I interacted with them multiple times and there were some things that felt robotic about it. Um, and I can't remember exactly what they were, but I remember thinking like, 
this was too much like the last time I talked to somebody. Like it was almost because identical. Because there's got to be lots and lots and lots of people planning a Disney trip at, at any given time. Right. And so what I think it happens is it, it acts as a funnel. So I was probably talking to a computer up until a certain point. Right. And once my questions became more complex, then they connect me with a real person. But Which is smart because they couldn't possibly have enough personnel to help plan the number of Disney trips. Yeah, well, okay. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. But did you know that Disney like pays travel agents 10%. Like you, if you use a travel agent for Disney, no. Disney pays them. You don't pay the travel agent. So, oh, wow. But that's costing Disney money. But does Disney require them to conduct the planning of the vacation in a particular way? It, I think they do have to follow certain rules, but that's costing Disney money. So they're probably looking for ways around that to, you know, maybe be able to handle more people through that little bot on the website. It's also and, some free PR though, because if you're mm-hmm. a travel agent, you're advertising that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I know people who do Disney planning and it helps pay for future trips and all sorts of things. And, you know, when you someone drops $6,000 on a Disney trip, 10% is a good amount, you know. Listen, the bottom line is this. We're not going to go backwards. We're only going to continue to move forward. We're going to continue to develop artificial intelligence. We're mm-hmm. going to continue to see technology just really amaze us. Um, and in, not only in the medical field and other places, but literally in education, we will see some advancements uh, and we're going to have to embrace it. But I agree. I think we are, I must say light years, but I, I think we're at least 50 years away from the idea of like a... Can you imagine? Do you remember when you were young and we would watch the Jetsons? Right, exactly. And all the things that haven't happened. Right, but know. how many things have? Right, some have, some have. Pretty, and, pretty know, cool to walk around you know and talk really, in your watch. I, I need to go back and watch uh, Minority Report. I don't know if you remember that one. It took place in the future, had Tom Cruise in it. And there was a lot of stuff in there that I kind of remember that do seem pretty true in terms of like recognizing you mm-hmm. as you're walking into a store and targeting ads towards you. Even in, even in 007, when he would talk into his phone or look, right. I mean, we're hey, there, we're right? doing all that right now. We are there. And Batman, a lot of technology in there. I've got a story out of Louisiana today. We don't always seem to hit Louisiana, but um, this one is out of uh, Walker High School, which sits just a little bit to the east of Baton Rouge. And um, it was really neat. And this is something that I think a lot of schools could duplicate. They um, are putting a PJ's coffee, which is kind of like yeah. a Starbucks. New but Orleans very flavor small, coffee. Exactly. Smaller chain, but they're in a lot of places. Pretty tasty. And they're actually putting one in the school. And then they're having their special needs and special education students um, going to act as baristas oh, at the uh, work facility. experience. Yeah, work experience. And it's going to be open from awesome. 7 to 1. It's open to the public as well. Like they can come by and get coffee there. And Anybody concerned about the caffeine intake? Yeah, maybe. But I, I guess if you're, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I love the work experience. Yeah, I think this is great in terms of, you know, just being responsible to a schedule. I mean, look, I watch my 19 year old still learning the stay. He's on a second job and just like, hey, did you put in time off for such and such? And it's just like these it's little tough. things that they don't, they don't keep up with and they don't realize the impact until they're impacted by those things. Well, I do think a lot of schools should replicate that. And, you know, we already have students who, you know, leave early during the day to report to a job. Mm-hmm. Um, they're job shadowing, just a lot of great college career uh, experiences happening now, especially through the CTE programs. But I absolutely love that because that's work experience. They can develop responsibility. There's social interactions. Think about the mathematics being required to calculate, you know, um, the money, right. using technology, obviously with the register. Um, I love that. Well, and 
I really am thinking about reaching out to this high school because there's just one little paragraph in there. And this is in The Advocate, which is a paper that serves that area. Yeah. So they kind of probably maybe done past stories on this and they didn't really harp on it too much. But it says, Walker High School has spent more than a year modeling its campus into a mini business plaza with a Papa John's, a credit union, and a Walk-On's Bistro and Bar branded conference center and a Nike store. We need to have them on the show. That's awesome. I want to hear more about that. Oh, my. I mean, you need to visit, take pictures, and interview some folks and bring that back. It is a drivable distance. I think so. So we might need to. I think that'd be a great story. Um, But uh, I just, we'll we'll see. This might be a little bit of a a beacon in the sky there that we can kind of focus on um, out of uh, Louisiana. But I just thought it was really cool. I'd love to see that. Are you uh, ready for the bright idea? Bring it on. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a four-time Emmy Award-winning writer for the Bill Nye the Science Guy. Lynn Brunel is also the author of Big Science for Little People, 52 Activities to Help You and Your Child Discover Wonders of Science. And Lynn has a brand new book coming out. She will release Turn This Book into a Beehive. Lynn Brunel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, first up, I got to ask, because it's, it's piqued my interest. Um, what's it like writing for Bill Nye the Science Guy? <laughs> it was the best job. It was so much fun. It was kind of like uh, a combination of uh, Mr. Wizard meets Saturday Night Live. So it was <laughs> it, it tapped into my love for writing funny things, but also making kind of difficult concepts that some people are intimidated by, making them accessible and fun. Because in my experience, if it's funny, if you laugh, I, I you remember it. And I'm guessing that's kind of how you were like, I've got to turn all this into a book, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, one of the books that I'd written uh, was a book called Pop Bottle Science. And that happened as a result of when I was at the Nye show, I always had a bottle of water on my desk and people would come in and say, well, I'm not really sure I understand this concept. And I would grab the pop bottle more often than not to do a little demonstration to show what I was talking about. And I thought, my gosh, there's a book here. I've been doing this. And these plastic pop bottles are like little mini science laboratories. And so I wrote a book called Pop Bottle Science. And the book comes inside the bottle. And and that's really cool. And we're going to talk more about some of these creative things you have, because I know just kind of looking at um, your last book, The uh, Big Science for Little People, don't you have something Mm -hmm. in there where you use a bottle to, uh, to make like a lava lamp or something? Oh my gosh, I use bottles all the time because, you know, they really are perfect little mini science labs. They're waterproof, they're airproof, they're see-through, they're portable. Um, So they're a terrific thing for kids. And they're also, you know, accessible. They're a great thing for kids to to play with. But yeah, if you put water and um, like vegetable oil and food coloring and an Alka-Seltzer in a plastic pop bottle, you can make an awesome lava lamp. That's that's really cool. Your your new book, uh, again, is titled "Turn This Book into a Beehive," and yes. the title alone that <laughs> that's interesting. Turn this book in, like you literally turn the book into a beehive. You actually do turn it into a beehive. So you know, as a as a science writer, I've got a lot of people always coming up to me and saying, you know, how about this? And can you explain this? And and then you hear about all these problems. And one of the problems that I read about was the beehive uh, dilemma, the 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 honey beehive collapse disorder, which is happening, and it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> there are all sorts of theories about why it's happening. You know, is it global warming? Is it pesticides? Is, is it are these mites? You know, it's like it's a combination of everything. But like when you write for kids, you don't want to say, uh, hey, kids, this is a really bad thing. The end. You want to be able to empower them and say, you know, is there something that you can do? So that's where this book came from. Um, it turns out that uh, mason bees, which are wild bees, 
uh, which represent like 98% of the bees on the planet. Uh, honeybees, the social bees are 2% of the bees that are living on the planet. Um, but wild bees, if you make them a home, they will actually come. And, uh, and, and they're amazing pollinators. They pollinate, uh, one mason bee can pollinate as many as a hundred honeybees. And so that's what you do. You actually take the outside cover of this book and you turn it inside out. And then the last signature of pages, you roll into tubes, which sort of mimic, uh, uh, hollow grasses or reeds. So yeah, no matter where you are in the country, um, uh, different species of wild bees will come and nest there. And if you've got them nesting in your garden or your yard or your fire escape or your pea patch or your park, they're going to be pollinating the flowers that are nearby and really alleviating the pressure that's on the honeybee. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing that, you know, what I wanted to do is come up with a way to, to, an optimistic way for kids to actually feel empowered. So it's kind of the book itself is a, a kind of a environmental power tool that uh, any kid can make and, and use and make a difference. And as you probably know, all around the country, teachers, there's a, there's a lot of focus on, on on STEM education. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and where does this really fit in there? This is more environmental sciences, this new book? Well, it is. Yeah, it's environmental science, but it's also, uh, you know, biological sciences because it explains everything about bees, um, social and solitary. So it's got all that stuff going for it, too. And then you've got a little engineering component because you're making this house. Um, so it's kind of, you know, I, I, it definitely falls within STEM, definitely. Why is it so important to, to really capture kids? I guess, what age group do you target with this book? And then why is it important to to kind of get them at a younger age? Well, my philosophy is that, you know, you got to, especially with girls, we got a little bit of a leaky pipeline. The kids, when they're younger, that's when they start to decide whether or not they like uh, science or math or technology, you know, and they, and they decide pretty early around 11, they've done these studies that show that around 11, that's when they decide, am I a science person or am I not a science person? And my philosophy is, yes, <laughs> everybody's a science person or a STEM person because it's all based on uh, wondering how the world works. And so I think we have to kind of, for me, I'm thinking we've got to rebrand this and show how cool it is because we spend a lot of time in our culture showing that being smart kind of isn't cool. I mean, look at where it's always the, you know, the, the, the smart kid is always the, the sort of geeky butt of the joke on sitcoms or, you know, you can actually dress up as a nerd for Halloween. So what are we saying to these kids, right? So what I want to do is make it early on and show how amazing this world is and how if you ask questions and you do a little experiment and you to do some observations that you can learn these amazing things. And once you've got these skills, you can, you can change the world. I feel like the, uh, the discussion about um, girls, women in science has been going on probably for about five to 10 years. Have you really seen mm-hmm. a difference uh, now that it's kind of on the radar? Um, well, you know, I, I am brought into it right now. Uh, last year, I was invited to go and speak at the UN about girls in STEM, and um, and it was uh, girls in STEM in the space sector, and it was a fascinating um, experience because we had people um, in all sorts of aspects of it. A lot of people, you know, they were. Uh, 
astrophysicists, there were astronauts, there were people at the high end of uh, government jobs. And then, uh, you know, all trying to solve this problem, like, why do we not have more diversity at the top in these, in these jobs? And, um, and a lot of the conversation uh, was around, you know, where we have to, we have to focus on hiring women at these levels. But honestly, I think it's like way back to preschool. I think it's like, you got to get down into making it cool, making it accessible, um, making it making it fun. I mean, if you think about it, if girls are deciding at age 11 whether or not it's cool or not to do science or technology or engineering, make it cool. You know, I don't think video games, well, video games are starting to change, but for the most part, they're aimed at boys and um, and they and boys have a lot of characters that they can choose from. Girls, you know, the, the characters that they traditionally have had to choose from have been either just silly or hypersexualized. So it kind of really indicates that's not a world for them. Right. So I think we have to make it welcoming and open early, early, early on and then and then, you know, start growing a seed. If you're a teacher, how do you win over the kids who think science isn't their thing? Um, well, that's my whole soapbox is that um, it's it's all about looking, wondering and uh, asking why and and then sort of seeing if I mean, so it's it's not as intimidating. I have a lot of parents that come up to me and say, oh, I'm not a science. I'm not a science person, but I know it's important for my kids. And I'm like, oh, so the first thing you need to know is that you are a science person. If you've ever wondered anything like uh, why is the sky blue or, you know, how does it rain or why does a basketball fall to the ground? You know, those are all science questions. We start off as scientists. I mean, kids are natural born scientists. They're, they're always asking why. I mean, even before two, even pre-verbal, you've got kids dropping off peas off of high chairs and that's, a, you know, it's an experiment. What happens if I do this? It's, it's what science is. You do it and you observe it and then maybe you change it a little bit. And so everybody's got that in them and it's fun. I think what, what kills kids' interest is when it's not presented in a fun way. And, um, and oh my gosh, science, it's nothing but fun. You have a story where you maybe had a parent or a teacher or a child kind of give you some feedback that made you realize um, that this is worth doing. Um, early on, uh, what my first my first teaching experience was way back in the day when they would take behavior problem children and put them into a classroom. So anybody that was causing a trouble in a traditional classroom would be stuck in another classroom. And that was my classroom. Mm -hmm. And it was grades four through eight. I had 25 quote unquote problem kids. And, uh, you know, a couple of them were, you know, scary. <laughs> and I was young. Um, but I loved this classroom because um, most of these kids were only quote unquote problems because they weren't learning in the same way that the other kids were easily learning. So um, it, it became very apparent to me that these kids could do stuff. They just needed a different approach. One kid uh, was told to me he couldn't do sequencing. They said, you know, he couldn't read a story and tell you what was the beginning, the middle and the end, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so, but I noticed that this kid was drawing all the time and he was really sophisticated drawings. And so I, this is also 
dates how long ago this was. It was back in the day of film strips. I made a film strip of a Japanese myth that we were reading, and I, I drew the pictures, and, and I showed this boy the film strip. And then I said, you know, draw a picture of the beginning. And it was a story about a turtle. And, um, and then draw a picture of the, you know, what happens in the middle, and then draw a picture of what happens at the end. And he totally drew these amazing pictures. And then it was like, okay, write a sentence about what's going on in your picture. This kid could sequence, but he came through it from a visual point of view. Mm-hmm. And there was a girl in the class who she couldn't do, um, she was in eighth grade and she had, uh, you know, they were studying the excretory system and she couldn't get her urethra from her ureters straight and all this stuff. And she just hated it, right? And so I turned it into a song and it was, you know, there's only one Aretha Franklin, you know, so there's only one urethra. And so we, we made it and we made a little song about it and she remembered it. She was a, she was a, um, you know, a musical kid. And so, um, she got a, she got an A in the test, except for she called it, uh, uh, she labeled, she had, they had to label it. She labeled the ureters and then she labeled the urethra Franklin. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. That's but it, but it was great because it showed me that, you know, there's different approaches. If you make something fun, and accessible and, and accessible in, in the way that a kid can reach it, um, then you're gonna, you're gonna hit the fascination button. And that's the thing. The fascination button's there. It's how you get to it. Have you ever really thought of like, where do you get these ideas? Like you, you read all these experiments and, and you just came up with that quick device to, to learn science. Like, where does it come from for you? You know, I wish I knew. It's that wonderful thing about when you're, you know, when you're being a writer and and it kind of comes through you. Um, I think it's just about listening and staying open because sometimes you'll hear something in a conversation or something something dawns on you and you're like, hey. And that's that's how the Beehive book came about. Um, I was uh, I, I have a garden and, um, I was thinking, Oh, you know, I've, I've heard about bees. I'm a little intimidated by bees and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, uh, you know, I saw this Mason beehive and I thought, Oh, I wonder if you could make that. And this would be cool for kids. You know? So I think it's just a matter of being open and I don't know where they come from, but they come through you. The uh, book is again, uh, turn this book into a beehive. It's like, it's going to be a Barnes and Nobles books, a million, IndieBound, Workman's website um, at workman.com, anywhere else, just about anywhere you can find it, right? Uh, I hope it's everywhere you can find good books. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Well, again, uh, Lynn Brunel, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I'm ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Hmm... And I can't say STEAM, can I? Because that's more than one subject. Yeah, that would, that would be like... <laughs> yeah. See, now, I'm a multitasker, right? If I say science, I also mean that I'm going to approach it from a, a language point of view and an art point of view and all that stuff. So I'll say science. Okay, fair enough. Uh, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? That learning is more fun than we think it is. That... Um, that approaching how to learn should be more engaging i think you know i think we get stuck a lot in the i'm going to tell you the information and then i'm going to test you on the information okay i'm going to tell you the information and then i'm going to test you on the information as opposed to an experiential kind of like hey let's you know um let's see what happens when you do this and you figure it out you know just i think i think that's what we're not teaching we're not teaching the fun of teaching. Right. Uh, what does every child deserve? Oh, every child deserves to have exposure 
to wonder. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Cultivating that wonder and cultivating that joy of learning. What do you think the best gift to give an educator is? Mm, Get them excited. Um, I think, uh, yeah, teaching, uh, you know, most educators that I know have that joy, but like if that was something you could package and give them like, you know, that passion and that excitement, that's what it, you know, it lights kids on fire. Which teacher changed your life? I had a couple. I had Mr. Tebow, my high school biology teacher. He was this little Frenchman and um, he would defy us. <laughs> he he taught biology and he would defy us to I defy you to get you know ten uh, questions right about plant stomata you know and of course you take that challenge but he was fun he would do things like he wouldn't just tell us about diffusion he would put peppermint oil in the sink and then ask us to raise our hand if we started to smell anything you know and so he would he would show us these things and um and he he really did bring that sort of magical wonder to things and which was nice at a high school level you know last question pen or pencil pencil why is that totally pencil i because i like to erase <laughs> Lynn, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us, uh, and hopefully uh, everyone will run out and grab the book when it's released in April. I hope so, and thank you so much for having me on the show. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>